Genesis 22, and I'll begin reading with verse number 1. And it came to pass after these things that God did tempt Abraham and said unto him, Abraham, and he said, Behold, here I am. And the Lord said, Take now thy son, thine only son Isaac, whom thou lovest, and get thee into the land of Moriah, and offer him there for a burnt offering upon one of the mountains which I will tell thee of. And Abraham rose up early in the morning and saddled his ass, and took two of his young men with him, and Isaac his son, and clave the wood for the burnt offering, and rose up and went unto the place of which God had told him. <coughs> then on the third day Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place afar off. And Abraham said unto his young men, Abide ye here with the ass, and I and the lad will go yonder and worship, and come again, unto, come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it upon Isaac his son. And he took the fire in his hand and a knife, and they went both of them together. And Isaac spake unto Abraham his father and said, My father, he said, Here am I, my son. And he said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham said, My son, God will provide himself a lamb for a burnt offering. So they went, both of them, together. And they came to the place which God had told him of. And Abraham built an altar there and laid the wood in order and bound his son Isaac, Isaac his son, and laid him on the altar with the wood, upon the wood. And Abraham stretched forth the knife and took the knife, took, stretched forth his hand and took the knife to slay his son. And the angel of the Lord called unto him out of heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here am I. And he said, Lay not thine hand upon the lad, neither do thou anything unto him. For now I know that thou fearest God, seeing thou hast not withheld thy son, thine only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in the stead of his son. And Abraham called the name of that place Jehovah-Jireh, as it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord it shall be seen. And the angel of the Lord called unto Abraham out of heaven the second time, and said, By myself I have sworn, saith the Lord, for because thou hast done this thing, and hast not withheld thy son, thine only son, that in blessing I will bless thee, and in multiplying I will multiply thy seed as the stars of the heaven, and as the sand which is upon the seashore, and thy seed shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because thou hast obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned unto his young men, and they rose up and went together to Beersheba, and Abraham dwelt at Beersheba. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would smite our hearts, that you would speak to us, that you would deal with us, that you would bless us with your word. We ask, Heavenly Father, that uh, we might honor you properly. 
in the things of God. Speak to us, we pray, in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. In the past, I've joined thousands of other gospel preachers in preaching this chapter as a message of Christ, a gospel message. But that's not my intention this afternoon. We're in the midst of a short series of messages dealing with practical faith. If you are like me, we need to learn to take what we know about the omnipotent God and move that knowledge from the intellectual into the practical aspects of our lives. We need to trust God to do the miraculous. Of course, God is going to have his will done. He is going to be victorious because he is God. But we are not going to be victorious until our faith becomes more practical than theological. It is a test of my personal faith even to think that I can share with you some of the things that the Lord has put upon my heart over the last couple of weeks. But I'm trusting God while doing my best to step out of the boat and walk on the water toward the Lord. Let's consider this chapter once again, focusing on the faith of Abraham. It was tested, tangible, thrilling, <clears throat> tutorial, and triumphant. Oh, that I could have 10% of the faith that Abraham had and 1% of the victorious life that he had. The Bible tells us that God took steps to test Abraham's faith. It came to pass after these things that God did tempt Abraham. And the things to which are referred is the covenant that Abraham has just made with the king Abimelech. One of his responsibilities while living in the land that God has given him, directed him to, one of his responsibilities is just like our responsibility to share with the unbeliever what we know about the Lord. And Abraham is trying to do that with the Philistines and some of the others in that area. In the midst of what was an up and down life in Abraham, which was on the upswing right now, things are looking pretty good at this point in time, God comes along and he tempts Abraham. Knowing that no prophecy of scripture, knowing that no statement of the scripture is of any private interpretation, Bible students understand that God never tempts people to sin. He does not tempt as Satan tempts. Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God, because God tempteth God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. James 1.13 Like James' Greek word for tempt, the Hebrew word which is used here is more often, almost twice as often, translated proved rather than tempt. We might say, and it came to pass after these things that God did test or prove Abraham's faith. But no two things at this point. 
First, God already knows the heart of Abraham. He knows the heart of Abraham better than Abraham knows the heart of Abraham. The Lord knows the metal of this man, whether it be gold or silver or precious stone or wood, hay, and stubble. The trial was not for God's enlightenment. God is never enlightened about anything. God never learns anything new. He is omniscient. He knows all things. He never acquires new information. The test was for Abraham's benefit. And I will add, not just for Abraham's benefit. Second, Abraham had already demonstrated remarkable faith when he left Ur in the Chaldees and moved to Haran and then left his father in Haran and took his family and moved into this new land, this promised land. He had already demonstrated his faith. He had demonstrated faith greater than what most of us have ever put in our trust for the Lord. He stuck his neck out and he made his feet walk in the will of God. He had already been tested by God, and as you already know, he passed that test. But here is another. Here is a more severe test. And in this, we are reminded that the Lord will test us, and then test us, and then test us again. And don't get the idea you're going to finally pass the course and it doesn't go on anymore. He's going to keep testing us. Throughout our lives, he is going to test us. The Lord tested Abraham's faith. This was another tangible test of Abraham's practical faith. Once again, like I did the other night, we have to ask, how was it that God spoke to the man? On this occasion, it was not an overwhelming burden which the Holy Spirit placed in the interior of the man's heart and he said, oh, I think I better go sacrifice my son on Mount Moriah. No. The Lord somehow came to Abraham and they spoke face to face, so to speak. This was not Abraham stepping out by faith leaning on the Lord to eventually find the place where the blessing was, even though that's true in part, there was more to it than that. If I had to guess, and this is a guess, if I had to guess, I would say that the second person of the Godhead, the Lord Jesus Christ, made a special visit to Beersheba where Abraham was then residing. I say that, because it is quite clearly the pre-incarnate Christ who spoke to him when he got to Mount Moriah. Verse 11, The angel of the Lord called unto him out of heaven and said, For now I know that thou fearest God, seeing thou hast not withheld thy son, thy only son, from me. The one who is speaking and called the, uh, uh, the angel of the Lord was God. In some special way, not fully explained, God spoke directly to Abraham, his servant. And the Lord said, Take now thy son, thine only son, whom thou lovest, 
and get thee into the land of Moriah and offer him there for a burnt offering upon one of the mountains which I will tell thee of. There was no room for confusion. This is pretty straightforward. Abraham was to take his teenage son, Isaac, and offer him as a burnt offering to God. Over and over again, the Lord said, Thy son, thine only son, the son who you love more than anything else in the world, that's the one I want you to sacrifice here. This could not be more practical. This could not be more real, more tangible, even if the Lord said, I want you to cut off your right hand. This was real. This test involved the most precious thing in that elderly man's life. This wasn't anything about moving to a new city. This wasn't about switching jobs. This wasn't about taking a cut in salary in order for God to meet the need of of somebody else. Abraham, are you willing to give up the love and the joy of your old age for my sake and my glory? Are you willing to do that? Instantly... The elderly father said, absolutely. And he started to take care of it. What motivated him? What lay underneath his willingness to obey this horrific command? Someone might say, he was moved by fear, as the book of Hebrews speaks about Noah. He might have been afraid of what God might have done to him if he had disobeyed. That's not it. Another foolish person might say, well, he lived in a different culture back then. The heathen were often sacrificing their children to various idol gods. Abraham was familiar with the concept because he had seen it or heard of it and his neighbors. And if his God wanted him to do the same sort of thing, he was willing to do it. That's not it. That's not it. There's some truth in that, but that's not what motivated Abraham. I'm convinced that at the heart of all this, at Abraham's heart, was... A very real, practical trust in what God was asking him to do. Telling him to do. That man had an extraordinary faith. And testing God was not his response to the test of God. I'm not going to throw it back in your lap. I'm going to do what you told me to do. I would guess that Sarah knew nothing about the purpose of this journey. Just a guess on my part. He might have shared it with this woman. And if so, that's amazing on more than one level. But I'm going to say at this point, nah, probably didn't, didn't share that. She had been, been, may have been thinking, ah, they're going to be gone for a week and a half. I'm, I'm on a vacation here. No husband and kid to order me around. Maybe. She may have rejoiced in that her son and her husband would have that father-son bonding that such a trip might provide. Oh, they bonded. But not as Sarah may have been thinking of it. For three days they traveled together. Depending on the route of the journey, 
It was uh, 50 miles, 65 miles or so. Beersheba was one of the most southern communities in what became the Promised Land. They were to go from the edge of the Gaza Desert to where Jerusalem eventually stood in the middle of Israel. They had no audiobooks to listen to. They didn't have sermonaudio.com where they could hear some good preaching as they were traveling along. They had to bond with one another. They had to talk with each other. Imagine the conversations. What sort of things did they talk I I guarantee that the two young servants were a part of the conversation as well. They spoke with one another. They drew close to one another. And uh, Abraham's heart may have been breaking through the entire three days. May May have been crushed by just contemplating what was going on and and realizing how much he really did love this son of his. I say it may have been breaking because permeating the entire trip was his faith in God. Abraham's faith in all of this is thrilling to watch. Again, I point to his immediate obedience Time and time again, as I read through God's word, I see examples of instant obedience, immediate examples of faith. And I also see it in biographies of great men of God in in recent days, like William Fettler, James A. Stewart. What prompts that kind of response? In this case, I think it was faith. Now, do you remember the... The uh, modified Webster's definition that I gave to you on Wednesday. Faith is the ascent of the heart to the truth of which God has declared, resting on his authority and veracity without the necessity of any other corroborating evidence. God said, go sacrifice. Abraham says, where? Off they go. Based on his faith, Abraham set off to do what the Lord had commanded, trusting the Lord for his outcome, whatever that is. Eventually, Isaac asks the question, Behold the fire and the wood. Where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And then we have faith's famous answer. My son, God will provide himself a lamb for a burnt offering. What was Abraham thinking that would take place? What was he expecting? Scholars have been debating about that for a very long time. What what is in his mind? Was he thinking that the Lord would supply a substitute for Isaac? It's possible, but I, I don't know. Did he think that Isaac would rebel and escape? I doubt that. Did he think that God would stop him at the last minute? Perhaps. Anything else? Perhaps. Let me take you back to God's original call to this man. 
Genesis chapter 12, where we were on Wednesday, verse number 2. I will make of thee a great nation, and thee shall all the earth be blessed. That promise was made to Abraham more than 25 years earlier, and Abraham now is well over a century old. He's an old man. His opportunities to become a great nation are somewhat limited, unless it be through Isaac. In the next chapter, Genesis 13 and verse number 14, Jehovah reiterated his pledge. I will make thy seed as the dust of the earth, so that if a man can number the dust of the earth, then shall thy seed also be numbered. Where is that seed going to come if it's not through Isaac? In chapter 15, before Isaac's birth, Abraham may have been thinking that his favorite servant, Eliezer, might fulfill God's plan. But God told him, nope, that's not it. Nope. And even after the birth of Ishmael, before Isaac came along, Genesis chapter 17... The Lord made it known that it would be Sarah's child, not Hagar's child, who is going to fulfill these promises. And then at the ages of 90 and 100, God gave to Sarah and Abraham the promised son Isaac, filling them both with hope and laughter. They were filled with joy. And now... God comes along and tells the man to kill the one whom he expects to become his heir. When Abraham raised the knife, holding it under his son's chin, I believe that he at that point expected a divine miracle. It was practical. This was a test of the man's faith. Uh, and the faith trusted the, will, the, the wisdom and the will and the power of God. Either God would spare Isaac's life, or perhaps even more spectacularly, he would restore the life once it was gone. You and I know the end of the story. So that, we have that in the back of our minds. We know that God did supply a substitute. But is that what Abraham was thinking? We don't know. Not knowing the details, not then knowing the details, I'm sure that Abraham had faith to believe that God would somehow keep his promise. He's told me this thing several times, reiterated it. God will keep his promise. That, my friends, is the country in which we are supposed to live. Yes. God said it. Yes. He will keep his word. That's where we're supposed to abide. God always keeps his word. Titus, two, Titus 1, verse number 2, God cannot lie. Therefore, he must keep his promises. He cannot lie. David found himself in a situation somewhat similar to Abraham years later. In 2 Samuel 7.28, David expressed his faith in Jehovah. He said, And now, O Lord God, thou art that God. 
and thy words be true, and thou hast promised this goodness unto thy servant. Now, therefore, let it please thee to bless the house of thy servant, that it may continue ever before thee. For thou, O Lord, hast spoken it, and with thy blessing let the house of thy servant be blessed forever. David received a similar kind of promise to Abraham, and David is pleading that promise. You said it, Lord, so that's the way I expect you to behave. I think the same sort of faith-filled prayer went through the heart of Isaac's father, standing at the top of the mountain where David eventually prepared his son to build the temple. The site became known as Jehovah Jireh. The Lord will provide. Yes, this is the kind of place where many of God's trials end up. This is what it's all about. Our faith is sometimes tested to teach us. He will provide. We wouldn't know it if we weren't tested. We also learn that until we step out of the boat onto the water, the Lord has no need to provide. We need to be in a place where we need the Lord. Jehovah is God, always and forever. But he's Jehovah Jireh only to those who step out by faith. He provides only in the understandable way, when we have a need, and he spectacularly meets that need. What does the phrase mean in verse 14? The mount of the Lord, excuse me, in the mount of the Lord it shall be seen. I think that it must refer to that mountain where all of this took place. Verse 2, God said, Take now thy son, and get thee into the land of Moriah, and offer him there for a burnt offering upon one of the mountains which I will tell thee of. I think that verse number 14 is pointing to the site where this sacrifice was made, and to also where the greatest of all sacrifices was to take place. 2,000 years later. This Mount Moriah became the site for Solomon's temple. Second Chronicles 3.1 Then Solomon began to build the house of the Lord at Jerusalem in Mount Moriah. And not too far away was Calvary. Where the substitute for Isaac gave up his life to save him and us. God didn't want Abraham's sacrifice to be made just anywhere. He's way down there in Beersheba. And God says, I want you up there at Moriah. And I'll tell you the exact place where I want you to stop. No sacrifice anywhere else. It had to be there. There's only one sacrifice for sin. It's the Lord Jesus. It was to be made where the Son of God gave his life a ransom for many. It was to be made at the place where the Lord had stashed away a ram for the burnt offering. Abraham's faith provided a tutorial for the faith of Isaac. I stand amazed at the behavior of this young man. 
And they came to the place which God had told him of, and Abraham built an altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar upon the wood. And Abraham stretched forth his hand and took the knife to slay his son. I am convinced that Isaac was not some little child. He probably walked all the way from Beersheba to Mount Moriah. He was not six years old. He was not eight years old. He was old enough to hold an intelligent conversation with his father about sacrifices and about obedience. He had been able to carry a rather large load of firewood up a slope which may have been too difficult for the ass to climb. He was big enough to pummel his elderly father and push him away and run off if that's what he intended to do. But he didn't try to thwart his father's wishes once they became clear. In other words, he was ready to give his life as the father was ready to sacrifice his son. Father and son sacrifice. Let me digress. I missed a point, which I thought was wonderful when I saw it. Before they left Beersheba, they got the ass ready, vittles for the trip and so on. Uh, you and you, 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 you're coming with us. And then they cut the firewood. They cut the firewood. Think about that. They're going to carry the firewood from Beersheba to wherever God wants them to offer this sacrifice. Abraham did not put out the fleece, so to speak. Right. Well, let's just forgo the firewood, and if the Lord really wants this sacrifice to be done, then he will provide firewood when we get there. That's not the way Abraham looked at it. I'm going to be prepared to offer this sacrifice. He had the knife, he had the fire, he had the wood. He had to sacrifice. He didn't throw, as I say, the whole thing into God's lap to fulfill. Where was I when I interrupted myself? Why did Abraham bind his son? Well, I don't have a solid explanation for that. You don't have to tie up a voluntary sacrifice. Some say that it was simply customary to bind the animal that was to be sacrificed. Number one, I don't think there was a custom involved at this point, and then I don't see the necessity, I don't think it was done. A better explanation, perhaps but a bit of a stretch, is to point to the Savior who was also bound. Was it at the command of the Lord that Isaac was bound in order to fulfill the picture. And no, Abraham did not give his son something smooth, something to smoke to kind of calm his nerves and prepare him for the sacrifice. No. I believe that it had become Isaac's desire to be the sacrifice mm. that his father needed to please God. How is that possible? It's only my opinion, 
But I think that the faith of Abraham had become the faith of Isaac. The coincidence, or excuse me, the confidence and the love which the father had in God produced a child of its own in his child, Isaac. During the trip north, probably long before that, Isaac had been given the gift of God in the same kind of faith that his father had. There was a consensus between the father and the son about what was to be done. Reminding us of the consensus between the father and the son in eternity past for the sacrifice necessary for our sin. The kind of faith which moves mountains and brings down rain from cloudless skies is a pregnant faith. By that I mean it doesn't stand alone for very long. It produces faith in others. Seeing and even experiencing the faith of his father, Isaac may have been excited about the possibility of doing something which had never been done before. He was prepared to die. He was prepared to, most likely, look into the face of his Savior on the other side of death. And then, expecting to return to his father, perhaps with the privilege of talking to his dad about the Lord and the things that he saw on the other side of death. He didn't have Paul's testimony about seeing the other side and then returning with a thorn in the flesh, but uh, he was ready for whatever the Lord had prepared for him. Isaac was. Isaac's faith may have been as great and spectacular as his father's. It may, in one sense, even be greater than his father's. But is it my faith? Is it our faith? It may be our prayer. But have we ever touched the hem of the garment of faith? Do I have the kind of faith which cannot be hidden? The kind of faith which duplicates itself in other people? Do I have the faith which moves mountains and raises the spiritually dead? Why don't I? Has God somehow become limited? As we know, Abraham's was a triumphant faith. And the Lord, angel of the Lord, called unto him out of heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here am I. And he said, Lay not thine hand upon the lad, neither do thou anything unto him, for now I know that thou fearest God. And seeing thou hast not withheld thy son, thine only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him a ram caught in the thicket by the horns, his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up for a burnt offering in the stead of his son. And Abraham called the name of that place Jehovah-Jireh, as it is today, in the mount of the congregation, in the mount of the Lord, it shall be seen. Jehovah provides. I suppose we might try to define triumphant faith. Consider this Abraham submitted himself to the Lord, obeying God in every detail, 
And at the same time, he received the desire of his heart, the return of his son. Isn't that victory? To lay everything out to God and get it all back. And more. Triumphant faith risks everything which the Lord asks it to risk. And then because it's true faith, receives blessings beyond. The Lord Jesus said in Matthew 7, Ask and it shall be given you. Seek and ye shall find. Knock and it shall be opened unto you. But I'm pretty sure the Lord might have added, because he does elsewhere, according to your faith, be it unto you. Triumphant faith attempts great things for God because it has great expectations from God. Not in the flesh, but in the Lord. And triumphant faith replicates itself in the faith of others. Can you imagine what the trip home was like for these two, father and son? All four of them as far as that goes. Triumphant faith is the faith which glorifies God in the precise way in which the Lord intended it. Because Abraham obeyed and exerted his faith, we have a beautiful and powerful prophecy of the salvation of Christ. But if he had not obeyed, there would not be that illustration. The Lord had his will. In this sacrifice, we are reminded that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Isaac was raised up. Because Abraham trusted and obeyed God, we see the ram of God which taketh away the sin of the world. We see the doctrines of substitution and blood atonement. Triumphant faith results in the glory of God. Triumphant faith is often at the heart of the salvation of sinners. Not their faith, but our faith. Oh, that we had more faith of this variety.